0: Now, what is going on here? And he's giving some instructions and then he ends with like this weird sidebar that looks like a completely different topic. But at the heart of what Paul is doing is he's, he's saying to these people, in light of everything that God has done, and he's been talking about that now for three chapters, live a life worthy of what you've received. Live in light of that. And he's not saying, now earn what you've been given. But he's saying, live in line with who you are. You've been made into something, so now live in a way that's congruent with what God has already done. So what is that kind of life? What does that look like? How does it feel? How does it taste? And Paul gives several markers, if you will, of what it looks like, but the primary thing that's on his mind is that we as Jesus' church would live a life of unity That we'd live a life of oneness with one another. That we would be a community that looks incredibly different than the world. This idea of unity is to be of one mind and one heart and one purpose and one spirit. It's to be united together. There's there's a great picture of that in Acts 2 actually. If you're familiar with the very first church that, that came out of the city of Jerusalem... And it says this about that church, that all the believers were together and had everything in common. And what that meant was, not not that they were all alike, but that they shared everything. They shared their hopes. They shared their dreams. They shared their failures. They shared their stuff. They shared their time. They, they shared everything because they had one thing that made them in common, which was Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is, which is really radical. He's saying, I want you to live the same way as those people lived. Here's what's shocking about it, though. You're, you're not shocked. I can see. <laughs> but it's shocking. And here's why it's shocking. Because the people in Acts 2, they were all Jewish, they had the same religious preferences, they had the same ethnic identity. They had the same racial background. They had, they, they were alike in all kinds of different ways. And it would have been easy for the world to go, well, of course they all get along. They all look like each other. And they all sound like each other. And they all act like each other. And they all believe the same way as each other. And now here comes Paul. And he tells a very metropolitan, diverse, multi-ethnic, multi-racial city like Ephesus, who now has both Jews and non-Jews as part of this new community, and he's saying the same oneness that they had, you should have. That's shocking. That's completely countercultural. It was countercultural to them in the Roman Empire, it's countercultural for us today. Because they weren't all the same. They, they were from incredibly diverse racial backgrounds. They were rich and poor, free and slave, male and female, young and old. And Paul is calling all of them to live as though they're one. That's radical. In fact, it seems impossible. And it would be impossible... If it weren't for something that was true of them. Because here, this is, I don't know if you picked up on this. When Paul says you guys should be unified, he doesn't say make unity. He doesn't say go out and get unity. What does he say in verse 3? He says make every effort to do what? Keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Maintain it. You've already been given the ability to do it. Just maintain what God has already given you. You can live as one. It's within your power to do so because He's given you something. Now, how can Paul say that? This is a group of people from incredibly different backgrounds and experiences and they're to live in one. And he's telling them they've received something which gives them the power to do it. And the reason he's able to say that is because something has happened to this group of assorted misfits in order to make oneness possible. Something has overridden their differences. Something has made their differences look minor in comparison to what makes them the same. So if you think of a scale and all their differences are on one side of the scale that looks impossible to lift... Paul says there's something on the other side of the scale that makes the heaviness of what divides us over there seem like feathers. So what has happened to make them one? And has the same thing happened to us? Well, this is what's happened. If you're a Christian, and I don't assume that all of you are, but if you are, if you you know Jesus as Savior, if you have a relationship with Him, if you're, the Bible says, to be found in Him, then something has happened to you. And this is what it is, verses four to six. One body, one spirit, you're called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all and through all. Do you hear what He's saying? He's saying, if you're in Christ, you've been through the same experience, and that experience overrides every difference that you have. So what does that mean? Well, if you have one hope what what is one hope? It's one destination it, it, It's a group of people that are looking to one point on the horizon and saying our hope for a better life, our hope for a new day, our hope for a renewed world is at that single point. We're all looking to that day. What is that day? It's the day that Jesus himself returns and makes everything new and, and overturns all the brokenness of the world where there are no more tears and no more crying and no more sickness and no more death and no more pain. And, and we as a church believe that that day is on its way just as surely as Jesus rose from the dead. And we all look to that day and we put our hope in that day. What does one faith mean? It means that we all have our trust, our hope, our faith in not in ourselves, not in what we can do for God, not in our goodness, not in our moral record, not in our education or our family background. We. Nothing to do with ourselves. We put our entire hope and our trust in Jesus and what he's done for us. It doesn't matter how much faith you have or how little faith you have. It's not the amount of faith you have. It's the object in which you place that faith. Jesus said you can have the faith the size of a mustard seed. I mean, it's like you can't even see it if it were in my hand right now. But if you put that amount and you take it out of your life and you put it in Jesus' life, you can move mountains. That's what he says. That's amazing. That means we don't have our faith in ourselves, we have it in him. How about one new baptism? What does it mean to have one baptism? It's not about whether you've been sprinkled or dunked. Okay, I'll just give you a clue there. But baptism is a symbol of new birth. It's a symbol that we've been born again into God's family, not because of our work, but because of His work. You, when you were, how many of you, when you were born the first time, decided that that was going to happen? You know, like I think I should get my parents together. I'd like to be born in September. So, Jan, okay, January, and in December you're plotting and scheming. You know, you're you're. You're writing a date night on your parents' calendar. (laughs) You're making all the moves in order for them to get together in January so that you can be born in September. Anybody? No, right? You didn't choose to be born. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose the place in which you were born into. And what Paul is saying is all of us have received a new baptism, which means that the God who created you decided that He was going to become your dad. You were adopted if you're in Christ. Not because of your work or because you were good or because you decided you wanted Him. He decided He wanted you and He went to the ends of the earth to find you and to make you His treasure and bring you home. That's what happened. And because of that, we have new life. Ephesians 2, which we read before, says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive in Him. And this is the mark of everyone who knows Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord. Everyone who's come into a relationship with Him has come in the exact same way. It doesn't matter what your story is or your background or how it happened no matter how miraculous it seems to you or how ordinary it was, doesn't matter if you were saved out of a life of incredible brokenness or you prayed a prayer when you were seven years old, each story is by nature, because of the work of God, a miracle. And everyone who's been through that miracle and now knows Him has all experienced that miraculous saving work. See, I, I don't know if you realize this, but the, the world has gotten the, a really wrong idea about what the gospel is, about what it means to be in a relationship with God. And I used to subscribe to that lie, too, for the first 21 years of my life, actually. Because the, the world tends to think that to be a Christian means that you're, you're a kind of a bad person, but you become a better person. Or you're a good person, but you become a really good person. Or you're, you're sort of, you know, maybe a little bit of a nice person, but then you become a really nice person. And God's saying, no, you were, you were a dead man, and I've made you alive. You're new. You're not just good, you're new if you're in me. And let me tell you, everyone who goes through that same experience has the ability now in Him to be unified with one another. And it doesn't start with what we do. It starts with what God has done for us. Because when you've been through that experience and you look at other people who've also been through that experience then it doesn't matter how different you are racially with that other person. It doesn't matter how politically different you are with that other person. It doesn't matter how financially different you are with that other person. All of those disagreements and all of those differences look minor in comparison. You know, one of my sons has dimples and the other one does not. And if you were to look at the two of them, you would go, I mean, you could say by nature, like, wow, look how different they are physically. Look how different they are personality-wise. But then you go, oh, yeah, they're part of the Francor family. What makes them the same is far more than what makes them different. And that's what our oneness is based on. So here's the truth. If you, I'm speaking primarily to my brothers and sisters here, our family, although you guys can listen in and maybe God will convict you of this as well. If you find it impossible to love people who are different than you, different than you politically, different than you racially, different than you financially, especially if they're brothers and sisters in Christ, then you, my friends, have forgotten the Gospel. You've forgotten the oneness that God purchased for you at great cost. Because in Him, it's oneness isn't just possible, it's necessary. It, it's a family trait. It gets passed down from our Heavenly Father to His kids every single time with every single son and daughter. Now, how do I know that that's true? It's true actually because Jesus prayed for it. In John 17, at the very end of His life, Jesus is praying for His followers and for the people that are going to believe and this is what he says i pray for those who will believe in me that all of them may be what one you think when the son of god the incarnate one who through whom everything exists and was created by the power of his word when he uses that same word to speak something over his people do you think it has the? do you think it's actually going to happen yeah, I would think so. And he said, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. What he's saying is when, when God has His way in His family, when He makes His kids bear the family resemblance, then we will live as one. We will Pursue peace with people that are different than us. And when that's happening, because it's impossible for the world to to attain it apart from God, this is what Jesus is saying. The world is going to sit up and take notice when it's occurring. They will believe that I am from the Father when my people are living in this family resemblance of unity. Now, why will the world take notice of this? What is it that looks so different about or should look so different about the church than about any other community of people in the world? I think it's primarily because the world thinks that in order to have unity that you by nature need uniformity. That the only real way to get unity is to is if you're all uniform, if you look the same and hang out with people that are the same and everyone talks like you and acts like you. And if I, I I'm just going to be honest with you. I think the reason that the world is not taking notice of the church, the reason why they're not in awe of the people of God, it has nothing to do with the shininess of their building, nothing to do with how spectacular their worship teams are or how wonderful their speakers are or not. The reason that they're not taking notice is that somehow they have gotten the idea and they're mostly correct that we as the church only love people who are like us. I think that's the impression that most people have gotten. That we love only the people that have the same views as us on politics, on immigration, on sexuality, and every other area of life. And that if you don't agree with us, then we cannot love you. In other words, they've gotten the impression that in order to belong in, a, in this family, you need to believe like this family. And if you don't believe, then you can't belong. But what they need to see, and family, what we need to be reminded of, is that the church is not a social club where everyone agrees with everyone else. And if, even if you're waffling on your commitment to being part of a church, because you're like, yeah, I don't know if I agree with everyone who I sit among, that should be a mark of good things, not a mark that things are bad. If we're actually diverse enough where you go, yeah, I probably don't agree politically with 80% of the people that are in the room. Fantastic! God's doing His work if that's the case. The family is becoming more diverse. Because we're not a social club, we're a radically inclusive family who in spite of our differences, in spite of our disagreements, share with one another the same Lord, the same Spirit, the same Dad, the same destination. We're all equally helpless without God's saving work in our hearts and that overrides everything. We have a deep commitment to each other. So that the world would know that Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. See, Jesus is basically saying, if the church is missing this, then the world has every right to reject our message. They won't believe it unless it's backed up by a community. Just as a way of encouragement, God is doing that work in us. I, I remember a dear friend who you all know as well and I won't mention him by name and he's not here um, as often as he used to be but he was very clear about the fact that he did not believe what we believed. And he had been through some experiences that led him to those conclusions. But what he would tell me regularly is I I never feel like I'm not part of this community, even though I don't believe. I just thought, that is the greatest endorsement we could ever possibly have. Because it means that we're the kind of community where you can belong way before you ever believe what we believe. We believe that's the mark of the Spirit of God working in us. Now, what does that look like? What, how do you put like flesh and bones on that? And Paul gives specific examples of what that looks like in, in verse 2. And they're really difficult things. By the way. Because he says, he says this, this is what unity looks like. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Now, let me ask you, we dialogue often sometimes, so I'm not, these aren't just rhetorical questions, but you can actually answer. What do these look like in a community? What does it mean to be completely humble in a community of people? How would that look if it's actually happening? Yeah, lifting others up and becoming less so they can come more, right? What else? Listening more than talking. Yeah. Good. What else? I know this is weird. Yeah, so we're, we, we're accountable to one another, but in our accountability, we don't do it to tear people down, but to lift them up. To kind of get under them and help them to who God is creating them to be rather than just coming down on people because they're not like us. When I think of it, I really think of it as like it's laying aside your achievements, right? To be to a truly humble person, doesn't matter what they've done in life, but they're able to lay aside all that they've accomplished so that they can connect with you. You ever meet like someone who's in a really high position, who's completely humble, and you're like, I could have run into them on the street and had no idea who they actually were because they just related to me as though they were my equal rather than my superior. That's humility. It's laying aside your achievements. Now, what is patience? What does that look like? <laughs> like, I don't know, I've never seen it before. <laughs> Let's get on with the next question. <laughs> Patience is laying aside your time. Right? It's laying aside your agenda for the sake of other people. That's, in a microcosm, that's what you're doing at a, red, you know, like at a traffic intersection. Everyone comes to the stop sign at the exact same time. What is patience? It's laying aside your destination for theirs. And that's what it means in a community. It's saying, I will lay aside what I wanted to do with my time so that I can meet you and what God wants to do in your time. How about bearing with one another? What's that look like? Yeah, uh, getting into the messiness of people's lives, right? People look really good on Sunday mornings. You guys, you all look great. You know that? We all look great this morning. You know it's just a facade, right? With me too. I mean, in my heart, in my life, there's, a, there's so much brokenness and messiness that God still has to clean up. So if you were to bear with me, it means that you come and meet me in the midst of my messy life. And you know what happens when you meet people in the midst of your, their messy lives? You get dirty too. Some of their dirt rubs off on you. They get clean and you get dirty. That's how you know you're bearing with one another. Are we willing to do that? See, none of us want to get messy. We want clean lives and we want the people that we relate to to be cleaner than us so that they can help clean us up. But that's not the way Paul says it happens. The only way that we get cleaned up is if we all get messy. That's how it occurs. Now, can you imagine just a community that does those three things in the way that Paul says to be completely these things? Can you imagine that? We would be the weirdest most attractive people on planet earth. <laughs> if we just did those three things. Wouldn't we? I, that would be amazing. I wouldn't even have to talk. Like, we, we would just get together and people are like, I want to come back next week because that group of people is just all, aw- they're amazing. And it must be possible, again, because Jesus prayed for it. If it weren't possible, then he wouldn't have prayed for it and Paul wouldn't have said, may it be so. But they did. So how does it happen? How do we actually get to the point where we are completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love? How does that actually occur? How do we become the kind of people that, that do that regularly and naturally? Because it's unnatural for us, right? And the answer that Paul gives is not what you think he's going to give. Because the answer that Paul gives, is he, he, this is where he gets off on this tangent. He says, you have to receive a gift. The only way you're going to be that kind of people is you've got to receive a gift. And that's what he's talking about in verses 7-8 because he says, each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That word grace, just think of that as a gift has been given. And he's apportioned gifts to each and every one of you if you belong to him. He has a specific gift that's for you and only for you. And, and as you receive that gift, the unity of what he's talking about is going to rise to the surface as everyone gives their gifts that God gives them. And, and then he goes on to say, this is why it says, he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And the picture that he's giving there is that this is how it used to work. A king would ride out with his army To a bordering nation who they're at war with. And that king would do battle with the forces of the other kingdom. And if the, if your king won, he would take captives. He would take captives of people. And he would take captives of treasure and, and, and all these different things. And then in victory, he would come back through the gates of the city and he would have a victory parade. And they would display all the things that they took captive. And all the people would come out and they would cheer the victory of the king. Yes, our king won victory. He secured it by winning. But here's, here's the thing. This verse is actually a quote of Psalm 68. But there's a key difference. I want to see if you pick up on it. Because Psalm 68 and verse 18 says, When you ascended on high, you took many captives... You received gifts from people. What's the what's the change? It, Paul says that he gave gifts, and Psalms says that he receives gifts. Why? Which okay? Which one is it? Does God receive gifts or does He give gifts? Well. <laughs> What Psalm 68 is talking about is the fact that when when God secures victory over the world, that absolutely everyone is going to come and worship Him. They're all going to see the fact that He's gained victory, and they're going to come and they're going to give their lives over to Him, and He's going to receive the gift of our lives for His sake. But what Paul is doing is really interesting because here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, hey, you know how all those kings, like earthly kings, they go out to battle... And what do they do, essentially? They go out and they have all this big army, all these people, and they use the strength of their army to gain victory, and then what happens to the spoils? It goes into the palace. I mean, that's the way kingdoms of the world work. The king uses the people to gain victory, and then the king keeps all the wealth. That's the way every king has worked from the time, from when time began and here's what Paul is saying Jesus is the only king he's the only king who's ever lived who goes out onto the battlefield by himself he goes out onto the battlefield by himself and he secures our victory on his own he's the army And what does he do when he comes streaming through the gates again in victory? All the things that he secured for us, he then gives them away as gifts to his people. He keeps nothing for himself. He gives it all away. And if you belong to him, then you get all of his possessions when he comes in victory. Now, what does he give? You'd like to know, right? If you had a king who's wealthy, he's going to give you gifts. You want to know what those gifts are, right? The first thing that he gives you is abilities. He gives you abilities. If you belong to him, then he's given you unique abilities that he's crafted for you and for you alone. That's the spoil of his victory. And so those are already the things that we've talked about. Humility, gentleness, patience, the ability to bear with others. Now, here's the thing, because as soon as I say that, and I, we joked about patience already, right? How many of you would say you're a naturally patient person? You're like, I will sit at an intersection and I'll just let it go from green to red, green to red. I'll just let everybody go, you know? That person that like really annoys me, I'll just talk on the phone with for hours with them. I'll let them unload all of their junk and I will do, I'll just listen and listen and be patient. Anybody just naturally like that? Yeah, me neither. <laughs> Nobody is. <laughs> Nobody is. But this is the point. Is that Jesus gives you gifts that you wouldn't otherwise possess. He, and I've seen it, family. I've seen Him do it. I've seen Him give patience to impatient people and turn them into the most patient, gracious people on earth. I've seen Him turn abrasive people into gentle giants. I've seen him turn people that are proud and and haughty into people of incredible humility. I've seen it again and again and again. That's how you know you've come to know this king is that you start the, the, the family resemblance rubs off on you. Which means it's available to you. And all you need to do is ask for the king's gifts. Now isn't that great news? Some of you are like, man, I tomorrow morning, I would love to be patient. Like when I walk into work, instead of being like the grumpy, impatient, like, you know, ticked off person that I normally am when I go into the office, that I'd be like a completely new person. That would be great if I could do that. Now, here's the thing you got to know. It would be great. But who would benefit from that greatness if that transformation actually happened? You would benefit, but who else? All your coworkers at the very same time. Because what are they thinking when you're this impatient person and you come through the door? There's that impatient person again. They're always, they never have time for anybody. They're always first in line. They always cut me off. See, if that transformation happened to you, the the blessing, the benefit of that transformation flows from you to other people. And that's the point of the ability. Is that it it wouldn't just rub off on you, but through you the Father would rub off on everyone that you come in contact with. Because as you're patient, as you're gentle, as you're humble... What's happening? Others are experiencing the Spirit of Jesus in you and then through you they might grow to know that they have a Heavenly Father that can also transform them. See, if if everyone is living this way, if everyone is being transformed by the Spirit of God, not living according to themselves, but submitting themselves to the King, asking and receiving His gifts, what's the fruit of that going to be? It's going to be a community of oneness. A place of unity. Jesus said, if you, if you remain in me and I remain in you, what's going to happen? You're going to bear fruit. This is what He's talking about, family. So the power to maintain the unity is a gift that He gives to everyone. But here's what that also means. This is the flip side of it. It means that the responsibility for maintaining unity is also on your plate. Because if you've been given a gift and you choose not to use that gift, then that is on you. All of us have been given the opportunity to exercise unity. Which means it's not just on the shoulders of the leaders to do it. We as the leaders of the church, we, we, we will try our best by God's Spirit to model that for you. But it is the the responsibility of every member of the family because we're one body. There's there's ways that you and only you can do this. There are opportunities that God will give to you and only you. Which means if you withhold your gift, if you don't put it in play, then the unity of the body will suffer as a result. And here's what that means. No matter who you are no matter what people have done to you, the first move of unity, the first move of oneness, the first move of maintaining the bonds of peace is always yours. The ball is in your court and nobody else's. Because the, because the king wants to give you his gifts. Now how are you going to do it? The only way that I know of is that you have to keep pressing into the gifts. Because you you won't make the first move. You won't use your gifts and your abilities to maintain that peace if you don't receive the second gift that he's talking about. And that second gift is the gift of himself. And that's that weird part at the end where you're like, what in the world just happened there in verse 9 and 10 when he says, when when. What does he ascend mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? And he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole earth. I mean, doesn't that look like the tangent of all tangents? Like he just went like completely off the rails. If he had an editor, like the editor would be like, what is this, Paul? Let's just get this out of here. But he's alluding to the greatest gift of our conquering king. And that's the fact that he descended for us. He descended for us. What does that mean? It means that He became less so that we could become more. Here's the thing about unity. In order for a group of people to have real unity, to exercise humility and patience, putting up with others, all all the things that we've already talked about, what does that require of the people within that community? It, It requires that they become lower. Right? You have to lay aside your achievements. Lay aside your time. Lay aside your pet peeves. You have to lay yourself down in order to lift other people up. You have to become less so that others can become more. That's the only way it's going to happen. And the only way you're going to do that is if you know that Jesus Christ secured your victory by becoming lower than you. That's it. That He descended... I think about this. The eternal creator of the universe. The one through whom everything was made became a baby. The fingers that crafted the universe were, were started out as the size of acorns. And then not only that, he didn't just become less that way. Philippians 2, verse 6 and 7 says that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He became less than a baby. How did he do that? On the cross. On the cross, he died for our sins, which means that he took on the penalty for our the ways that we don't protect the unity of His world. And He was destroyed so that we could be put together. He He Himself was put in our chains so that we could be set free. See, without Him, we're captives. We're, we're captive to our pride. We're captive to our independence. We're captive to our idolatry and our selfishness. And we can't gain freedom And what did Jesus do? He comes and He does battle to set captives free so that those things that are keeping us from living lives of real unity and real oneness with other people are destroyed forever in Him. He liberated us on the cross. I mean, think of this. When He's on the cross, the things that destroy us the things that tear us apart from one another, they thought that they were destroying Jesus and yet with his last breath, he's destroying them. That's the, that's the incredibleness of the cross. Which means he doesn't just give you the ability to, to, to create oneness, he gives you the freedom to actually do it. He gives you the freedom to want to do it. Because that same one that descended for you now fills the whole universe, which means he fills your hearts as well. And so he, he, as he fills you, you get his abilities, but you also get his power to do it. And that means that the only way that you're going to see peace in your relationships, in your family, among your friends, the only way that you're going to see real transformational oneness is through him. He's the king that has the goods. And he's the only one that can give them to you. Now here's, here's what it takes to get them though. You have to humble yourself. You gotta humble yourself. That's the only way. He descended for you and you have to descend in order to meet him. You have to admit how powerless you are without Jesus. That's why 1 Peter 5, verse 5 says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but he shows favor. He gives grace, the gift to the humble. You want to see unity in this world? You want to see peace on earth? Then you need to admit your need for Him so that He can come in and save you. Because the reality is if you don't, if you remain proud, if you say, I'm going to do it myself, I'm going to do it without your help, God is opposed to that. Which means that your relationships will continue to bear the marks of brokenness everywhere you go. My kids and I were watching Wreck-It Ralph on Friday night. We had a movie night at our house. you ever seen Wreck-It Ralph? And Wreck-It Ralph has two characters, right? you got Ralph and you have, who's the other guy? Fix It, Felix. And no matter what they try to do, Ralph wants to, he, he wants to change and become a good guy, right? But no matter what he does, every time he tries to fix something, what ends up happening? He breaks it and and Phil no matter what he tries to do he's he's in a jail cell at one point and he's trying to get out he's like i'm going to bang on these bars and it, the moment he bangs on them they become stronger and he's like shoot why do i always fix stuff <laughs> he like can't help it it's the same way we apart from god no matter what we try to do even in our best efforts to fix our relationships to see peace happen We end up making it worse. But Jesus is the fix-it man. And when he comes into our hearts and we humble ourselves, and we have him operating in our hearts, guess what happens? No matter where we go, no matter how much we mess up, no matter how broken we end up making our lives or our family or even this world, Jesus in the end will put it back together. And that means that we have to humble ourselves. And the moment that you do, guess what you find? He's been waiting for you the whole time. Let's pray and meet him there. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you are great at fixing things. That you are amazing at putting us back together and restoring broken relationships and even one day you will fix this world entirely forgive us of our attempts to try to do it alone forgive us of creating more brokenness where you've called us to be one help us to believe the gospel and to receive these gifts we pray in jesus name amen
1: Thank you, Jay. You know, as Jay was talking about unity within the body and within the family of God and in the family of Jesus Christ, reminded me of the fact that when Jesus was calling his disciples, one of the disciples that he called was a guy named Matthew. And if you know anything about Matthew, you know that he collected taxes for the Romans. And the tax collectors were among the most hated people in Jewish society because they were considered traitors. You know, they turned their back on their own people to collect taxes for the Romans. And yet, even though Matthew was Jewish, he was considered an agent of Rome. Jesus also called another disciple by the name of Simon, who was a zealot. And if you know anything about the Zealots, they were avowed enemies of Rome. They were so crazed in their hatred for Rome that they would do whatever they thought it took to try to overthrow Roman rule. They staged, you know, numerous revolutions, vast majority of them unsuccessful, which ultimately resulted in the crucifixion of thousands of Jews. And to take two men like that who would have been on opposite sides of the political spectrum, To bring them together and to make them both his disciples, to make them part of the same family, to give them both that same hope and that same faith, that is something that only Jesus can do. He did it then, and he's still doing it today within his family. So thank you, Jay, for that message. This is the time of our service that we call response time, and we respond in a number of ways. Our praise team is going to lead us in worship and that is one of the ways that we respond by continuing to worship God and our Savior Jesus Christ we also respond by the giving of our treasure and when the ushers are going to come and receive our morning offering uh, this is for those of us who call cultivate home if you are visiting with us here this morning which I know many of you are in fact I think our visitors almost are almost as numerous this morning as our regulars but But that's okay. If you don't have a church home, we'd like for you to stay and make this your church home. Uh, But if you're visiting with us this morning, you are under no obligation to give. This is our gift to you, so feel free to let the baskets pass. And the third way that we respond is by receiving communion together. Uh, As the worship team plays, we come up in groups. Uh, We have tables on either side, so you can come up in groups, and we take communion together and that's part these are the three ways in which we respond to to Jesus Christ so let's also respond to him this morning in prayer lord jesus we do thank you for your gift uh, your gift of salvation uh, you've you have not given us uniformity but you have given us unity uh, one faith one lord one baptism that's something that only you can do and When we see that happening, you know, in our midst and in our community, Lord, we know that it is of you because you said by this shall all people know that we are your disciples, that they would know us by our love. So uh, we thank you, you know, that you've given us your love. We pray that you would help us to return that back to you by loving you with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength and to love one another, Uh, our brothers and sisters and also our neighbor as ourself, Lord. And we know that anyone who, other than ourselves, anyone in need, is our neighbor. And so we just pray that you would help us to show the love to them that you've shown to us. And we just thank you and we praise you. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.